This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 176. Greetings, Metamorphs! Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, your guide to the fantastical world of Metamorph City. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you, fresh off the writing desk. So let's get right to it, shall we? Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 34 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, Kate had another strange dream, where she was walking through the streets of an abandoned Metamore City. She came to a locksmith's shop where a mysterious treasure chest seemed to be calling her to try to open it. Her police psychologist, Dr. Jared Tamlin, appeared there as well, and together they entered the shop and tried to open the chest. Through their conversation, though, Jared seemed to realize that Kate was really Kate. Somehow, they were in the same dream. Urgently, Jared told her that he had been captured by some kind of cult, which thinks he might be their chosen one. They put him into a trance to see if their deity, the shackled god, would reveal himself to Jared. Jared started to describe to Kate where he's being held captive, but then a lightning bolt struck the back of his head, and Jared vanished from the dream. Kate heard a voice calling to her from inside the chest, but before she could open it, she was awakened by a phone call from Callie Linder. Callie pointed Kate to the morning news programs, where Kate's new boss, Captain Shaw, was giving a press conference about the capture of Nevin Ardlito. Callie is furious, because Nevin is claiming that he and his five dead co-conspirators were responsible for the entire kidnapping spree, which obviously can't be true. Either Shaw believes Nevin's story, and she's an idiot, or she's spreading the story when she knows it can't be true, and she's a liar. Kate is troubled to hear Callie talking about her captain this way, but she can't say anything without blowing her cover and revealing that she's police. Instead, she talks to Callie about their next move. Callie's boyfriend, Will, is going up to Chisholm University, the elite school for Metamore's ruling class. Chisholm is the only place in Metamore that has all of the resources the cult would need in order to find and target their victims based on a shared magical and genetic heritage and Nevin Ardlito is a Chisholm alumnus. Will has never been to Chisholm before, so on advice from Dr. Morgan Drowling, he's being accompanied by a police officer who is also a Chisholm alum, Corporal Elizabeth Moore, Kate's new partner at Special Investigations Division. Kate doesn't tell Callie that Lizzie is her partner, but she does reassure her that she knows Lizzie and that she's good police. Callie is glad to hear it, She doesn't really want Will mixed up in this business at all, but he is desperate to help, and doing research at a college campus is probably the safest option. And anyway, Callie says, she can't keep shutting Will out if she wants him to stay in her world. 
It's a rare show of vulnerability from the runner, and it leads Kate to a stunning realization. Callie's in love with Will. The Lost and the Least, a novel of Metamore City. Written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 34 The lightning bolt tore through Jared's dream form, ripping him out of his trance and snapping him back into his own body. His nerve endings screamed in agony, and he fell back on the cold stone floor, muscles convulsing. Rough hands seized him and heaved him to his feet. They dragged him over to the wall, where a set of manacles had been installed, and clapped the irons around his wrists, suspending them above his head. They let go of him then, and his legs buckled beneath him. The weight of his body fell on his arms and shoulder joints, and he let out another cry of pain. Nothing else happened to him for at least an hour. Adrastia was nowhere to be seen, and the guards kept their distance, though someone was always watching him. Jared gradually recovered his strength and his footing, and then he stood there, waiting to see how his rebellion would be punished. Adrastia eventually reappeared, looking profoundly irritated. She conferred with the guards for a few minutes, and one of them handed her a stun wand, the kind SWAT team sometimes used for riot control. That must be what they hit me with, Jared thought. She came to stand before him, her mouth a cruel, hard line below the silver mask. She tapped the wand against her open palm. The electrodes at the tip flickered with blue sparks. You're a resourceful one, I'll give you that, she said. Jared couldn't read her emotions from the tone. Was she angry? Amused? Disgusted? Reaching out to another potential like that. I have to admit, I didn't expect it. Her lip curled upward on one side. But it's not as if the guards couldn't hear you talking. Jared found enough of his breath to speak. Can't blame me for trying, he said. The first duty of a prisoner is to escape, right? Hmm, Adrastia said. She paced back and forth in front of him for perhaps a minute, still tapping the wand against her palm. Then, without warning, she jabbed the wand into Jared's stomach. Fire tore upward into his chest and down into his legs and groin. He screamed. He screamed until he had no more breath to scream with and collapsed against the wall once more. Only then did Adrastia remove the wand. She waited for more than a minute before speaking. This other you spoke to, Miss Katane, I believe you called her? Was she trying to reach the god as well? Jared hung his head and let out a long, ragged breath. I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? In the dream, what was she doing? I don't know, Jared shouted. Well, tried to shout, anyway. It came out as more of a wheeze. I don't think she knew anything. I'll be the judge of that. What did she say to you? Jared gritted his teeth. Good hell. It was the wrong thing to say. 
He'd known that even before he said it. But he would be damned before he would put anyone else in the crosshairs of this madwoman and her band of cultists. And that one moment of defiance felt so good, so satisfying. It was a feeling he tried to hold on to over the next two hours, as Adrastia and her minions inflicted hell on his body. Looking back on it later, as he lay exhausted in the darkness, Jura did not even remember everything they had done to him. There was a point at which the mind disconnected from the body, and the torment no longer felt like it was happening to him, but to someone else. They did not cut him, nor did they break any bones, but every square centimeter of his body throbbed with the abuse, and the joints of his arms and legs stabbed at him with every twitch of his muscles. In the end, they had dragged him back to the cold, bare cell where he had first awakened, and dropped him on the floor like a sack of potatoes. Adrastia knelt beside him and hissed into his ear. Congratulations, shrink. For all your insolence, you passed the second test. Aren't you pleased? We can't kill you now. You're too valuable. She rose then and used her foot to push him over onto his back. We'll be back for test number three when we've had a chance to prepare. Until then, enjoy the accommodations. She strode out of the cell, slammed the door shut behind her, and left him in darkness. In time, the tortured anguish of his joints and muscles subsided enough that he was able to move again. He sat up, slowly, his head pounding, and listened. He could still hear the river, but no voices or footsteps. Silas, he whispered. There was no response. Carefully, painfully, Jared crawled over to the wall, where eventually he found the hole to the adjoining cell. He put his mouth down by the hole and tried again. Silas! Still nothing. He turned his ear to the hole, listened carefully for the man's breathing. He heard nothing but the distant rush of the river. Silas was gone. The Chisholm University charter bus took Will out of the city and into another world. Technically, the grounds of Chisholm were within Metamore City proper, at the northeastern edge of the Valley North Borough, but they did not feel like the Metamore Will had come to know. The buildings here were human-scale structures. Dormitories, lecture halls, a clock tower, a cathedral with a steeple, and high, pointed arches. None of them looked less than a hundred years old, though there had certainly been improvements and renovations since then. The campus was also shockingly green, with broad, grassy lawns, flowering gardens, and neatly trimmed hedge walls. A full twenty hectares of parkland surrounded the campus, like the killing field around an ancient castle, all of it heavily monitored by surveillance cameras and patrolled by campus police. This was enough to deter most people on foot from wandering onto the grounds. More determined intruders would be stopped by the ten-meter-high wall around the campus proper, which was made of polished granite and topped with wrought-iron spikes. Will passed through these defenses unmolested. 
he'd had to show his new student ID just to get on the bus. He rode with about 20 other students, none of whom paid attention to him in the slightest, and with the undercover cop, who sat in the seat across from him. Lizzie Moore did not look like a cop, which Will supposed was the point. The leopard morph watched everything around her with bright-eyed alertness, the tip of her tail flicking up and down in silent interest. She had not said much since they boarded the bus, but Will did not feel that she was unfriendly or standoffish. There was something warmly inviting about her silence, a curiosity that welcomed others to join her in quiet contemplation of the world around them. Will found her presence strangely relaxing. Given what he learned this morning, he had needed that. Will took out his tablet, a recent birthday gift from his parents, and reopened the WorldNet browser. He refreshed his news portal, and sure enough, Nevenard Lido's arrest was still the top trending item. He opened the article and scanned through it, looking for any updates. At first, Will had felt triumphant that the suspected killer was from Chisholm, the very place where they had thought the victims might be targeted. But as soon as he saw Captain Shaw's press conference, Will had more questions than answers. How could six people have committed all those kidnappings and murders? How had the police tracked them so easily? And why were six Chisholm graduates, people who presumably had large reserves of wealth, power, and privilege, operating a black magic murder club out of an upper-middle-class basement in Soulshore? But perhaps the strangest puzzle was Ardlito himself. His co-conspirators had all committed suicide in order to cover their tracks. Why hadn't he done the same? Why was he cooperating with the police now? The more Will thought about it, the less sense it made, and the new details trickling out over the course of the morning had not made it any less confusing. They rode the bus through several stops on campus, before getting off at a broad plaza surrounding a five-meter-high bronze fountain. Will closed the browser on his tablet and opened the map application, trying to get his bearings. All right, so this is Fountain Court, he said, mostly to himself, which means Danvers Hall is that building over there, and... Lizzie tapped his shoulder, then pointed behind him. The library is over there, she said. Will turned around, and immediately saw the broad, tall building fronted by a white marble colonnade. It would have been impossible to miss, if he'd taken five seconds to look at his surroundings. Oh, he said, embarrassed. Lizzie gave him a close-lipped smile, then headed for the library, her tail swishing behind her. So you think we should do the library before the hospital? Will asked. Dr. Drowling seemed to think the kidnappers would be targeting the patients there. Our investigation last night turned up another lead, Lizzie said. All of the dead cultists had the same tattoo, but they didn't all get it at the same time. It looked like something they'd gotten in their teens or twenties. She pulled out her phone and called up a photo, which she passed over to Will. A skull and an old-fashioned key, surrounded by a stone arch, enclosed with a chain. Creepy, Will said. You think they all got it at uni? Lizzie nodded. Six people brought together by sinister occult rituals. 
Black robes, black magic, and a suicide pact. All with the same tattoo, which they all got at about the same time in their lives. Sounds like some kind of secret society, Will said. Do those actually exist? Like, not just in spy novels and horror movies? That's what we need to find out, Lizzie said. And while we're here, we can search for the victims in the campus directory. Maybe the student newspaper as well. She looked over her shoulder at Will and flicked an ear. And we'll provoke far less attention here than if we show up at the teaching hospital and start asking about missing persons. Will chuckled, shaking his head. Yeah, I guess I didn't think that far ahead. It's all right. This isn't your profession. She cocked her head at him. What do you want to be if you grow up anyway? Will laughed. <laughs> if I grow up? The woman's smile turned mischievous. Well, nothing is certain, you know. Will had to concede this. I'm a writer, a novelist. I've actually been working on a book about the street. That's how I got mixed up in all this. Well, he thought, that and having a freelance spy for a girlfriend. But he supposed that wasn't the sort of thing you should say to a police officer. Lizzie's eyes widened, as did her smile. Oh, that's perfect. Writers can ask questions about anything, if they say it's for a book. That can be our cover story. She gestured at Will's backpack. You have a notebook in there, I hope? Better, Will said, showing her the tablet. This thing backs up all my work to the world net, so I never have to worry about losing it. Nice, Lizzie said. If we find anything promising, we can share it with the rest of the team. By now they had passed through the doors of the library and into the main entry hall. No one asked to see their ID cards. They would need them to access certain features on the computer network or to check out any materials, but visitors to campus were welcome to browse. Lizzie consulted a map by the stairwell and led Will up to the fourth-floor periodicals section. A theriomorph woman sat at the help desk, a tall and fearsome-looking bearmorph. Her pink-rimmed reading glasses looked ridiculously tiny, perched on her heavy snout. Excuse me, Will said, stepping up to the desk. I was hoping you could help me find some background material for a novel I'm working on. The bear woman bared her teeth, which terrified Will until he realized the woman was smiling. Certainly. What sort of information are you looking for? Will fidgeted and picked at his fingernails. Well, the book is mostly set here, on campus. It's a thriller, you see, and so I'm looking for things in Chisholm's past that I could twist into something more sinister. Do you have any information about, like, fraternities gone bad, or unexplained events in campus history, or secret societies? Anything weird or mysterious or morbid might be useful. The librarian nodded slowly. Yes, there's two places you might look. We have a small section on campus history. She consulted her computer for a minute. Yes, try section GL8 on the next floor down. Most of the books in that section are pretty dry, but I believe we have a few that are aimed at a student audience. As for the other... A bit more typing and clicking. Section MA7 has copies of all our campus periodicals, going back to the beginning. The newer ones are in bound volumes, 
but anything more than thirty years old has been archived. You can still access the scans on the computer terminals, though. Thank you, Will said. Is there a way to search them? For keywords or topics? The bear woman's small ear is flattened back against her head. That's a pet peeve of mine, unfortunately. Keyword searches only cover the present collection, and maybe the last ten years of archives. Most of the newsletters have tables of contents, and we have those indexed back to about sixty or seventy years. They're not always complete, though. Before that, it's all just the raw scans from our microfiche records. Will blinked. What's a microfiche? The librarian stared at him a moment, then took off her glasses and rubbed her eyes. Gods, I'm getting old. Don't worry about it, hon. You won't have to use it. It just means those records are in black and white, and you won't be able to see much detail on any photographs. She shrugged her massive shoulders. Of course, since the campus newsletters were all cheap black-and-white print runs anyway, you won't be losing much. Got it, Will said. Thank you again. The librarian nodded. Any time, dear. Let me know if you need anything else. It took about twenty minutes of searching through the stacks before they found the bound campus periodicals. The plain brown book covers that the library used to bind them looked exactly like all the other bound periodicals on that floor, of which there were literally thousands of volumes. Will and Lizzie looked up at the wall of books, and Lizzie sighed. I had a feeling it was going to be like this. Will stepped to the end of the aisle and looked both ways down the cross corridor. Did you see where the closest computer terminals are? It took them another five minutes to find a terminal. Will was beginning to feel overwhelmed by how enormous the library was. There's no sense in us running back and forth, Lizzie said, as she slid into the seat in front of the terminal. I know the computer system. I'll start looking for potential leads. She pulled out her smartphone and opened the messaging app. When I find something promising for you to check, I'll forward it to your tablet. What's your address? Will gave it to her, and got Lizzie's smartphone number in exchange. Then he headed back to the stacks. Before he had even gotten to the newsletters, Lizzie had identified three volumes for him to examine. He spent the first hour just pulling books off the shelves, occasionally running down to one of the lower floors when Lizzie found a few interesting-looking titles down there. They gathered the books on one of the long study tables that lined the center of the hall. Once he had a good-sized pile built up, Will sat down and started going through them. It took another two hours before he came across his first real clue. It was a short newsletter article from 1973, with the headline, Chisholm Alum Dies in Cell Awaiting Trial. It wasn't the sort of story a campus newspaper usually ran, and that made Will take a closer look. Justice Tower Metamore City. MCPD Commissioner Franklin Levitt is demanding answers after Stanley Hamish Hincalid, 68, was found dead in his cell Monday, two days before his scheduled court date. Mr. Hincalid was a suspect in the so-called Midnight Snatcher killings that plagued the city from March to June of this year. MCPD medical examiners have yet to release a cause of death. 
Stanley Hincallid cooperated fully with our investigators, Commissioner Levitt said, speaking to the press on Tuesday morning. For him to die now, before having a chance to speak about these murders in a court of law, it is deeply unfortunate, not only for Mr. Hincallid's family, but also for the families of all the victims. They may never learn the true story of all that happened to their loved ones. For something to happen like this in the middle of police headquarters is simply inexcusable. Will took a picture and forwarded it to Lizzie, with a text message. Sound familiar? See what you can find on this guy. He put the book aside and opened one of the campus history texts that the librarian had mentioned. The title was Weird Chisholm. Scandals, Secrets, and Strange Tales of Metamore's Elite University. He flipped to the index at the back, then skimmed through until he found the entry, Midnight Snatcher. He followed the reference to the correct page. The Midnight Snatcher In the spring and summer of 1973 CR, Metamore City Police were baffled by a string of serial murders. The victims were taken off the street, seemingly at random. Most turned up dead the following morning, usually far from home. The press suspected a serial killer, and Marcus Daniels at the Metamore Sentinel coined the name the Midnight Snatcher to describe him. After nearly four months and 17 victims, police apprehended Chisholm University graduate Stanley Hamish Hincallid. For a potential serial killer, Hincallid seemed to have all the earmarks. He was quiet, intelligent, and socially withdrawn, though he had once been an active participant in campus life. In his apartment, police found books, reagents, and paraphernalia associated with ritual black magic. Initially, Hincallid claimed full responsibility for the murders, but his story began to fall apart under interrogation. He eventually admitted that other Chisholm alumni had assisted him with the killings. Unfortunately, the identities of these co-conspirators will remain forever unknown, along with the motive behind the murders. Stanley Hincallid was found dead in his cell two days before his trial, a victim of cyanide poisoning. It was unclear whether he had hidden a suicide capsule somewhere on his body when he was arrested, or if the cyanide was given to him, either with or against his will, by someone at police headquarters. If Hincallid had ever named his accomplices, the police never released those names, presumably because they couldn't find any evidence to back up his story. However, in a final bit of grisly Chisholm-related strangeness, police investigators later found the bodies of two of Stanley Hincallid's common room mates, Uriah Manchin and Ernest Drowling. Not much detective work was required. The two men turned up in a trash bin behind Justice Tower. Autopsy reports showed that both men had been crushed by a tremendous amount of weight, as if they had been trapped in a collapsing building or an avalanche. Their killer was never found, and their roles in the case, if any, were never determined. With their deaths, though, the spree of the Midnight Snatcher finally came to an end. Will sat back in his chair, dumbstruck. His eyes raced back and forth over the details, absorbing them one by one. A Chisholm graduate? A death magic user? Mysterious kidnappings off the street? A group of dead accomplices? And then the trail goes cold.
It's happened before, he whispered. Dear Eli, it's all happened before. And that's the end of chapter 34. Come back next time when Kate gets new orders from Shaw and Will uncovers an important clue. In Our Heart said, As a writer, you try to listen to what others aren't saying and write about the silence. So step into the hush with me and listen to what I'm working on. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 3,843 words this week, over the course of 5.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 699 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 112 days without breaking my chain. I took some time this week to focus on the business side of Liminal Corvette Press. I made the cover art for the Lost in the Least audiobook, updated my catalog at liminalcorvettepress.com, and did some behind-the-scenes work on WordPress to keep my websites running smoothly. As a result, I only did actual writing on four out of seven days this week. You'll recall that my goal for this year is to write on at least 24 days out of every month. So far, I've written on 19 days in January, so if I can write on five of the next six days, I'll meet that goal. Homecoming is now in Chapter 18, and the manuscript is over 50,000 words. Before I go, I have one quick announcement about the Metamore City audiobooks. You may or may not know that Audible has a bounty referral program. If someone buys one of my audiobooks, and it's their first purchase at Audible, or if it's their first purchase on a new subscription, then Audible pays me a bounty for that new listener. Other podcasters, like Scott Sigler, have been using this for years, and it's a major part of their business revenue. Starting this year, Audible is changing the way bounty payments work. They're increasing the size of the bounty by 50%, but here's the catch. They'll only pay it if they know the new customer joined because of me, and they didn't just pick my book at random. The way you prove this is by using special bounty referral links to buy my books. These links are on my Facebook author page, on the catalog pages at liminalcorvidpress.com, and in the show notes for the episode you're listening to right now. If you've never bought an audiobook from Audible before, this is a super easy way to hand me a big chunk of Amazon's money. Just follow the links and buy one of the three Metamore City audiobooks I have for sale, Urban Legends, Things Unseen, or Divine Intervention. You'll spend less than 20 bucks, Jeff Bezos will send me about 80 bucks, and Audible gets to show off their slick audiobook delivery platform. Everybody wins. Just remember, you have to use those bounty referral links or it doesn't count. Check out the show notes, visit my Facebook author page, or go to liminalcorvidpress.com. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. 
My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Menabor City on Facebook, and my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.